after predicting a Yamaha whitewash at the Spanish Grand Prix at Jerez, welcome to a show which prides itself on its accuracy. Welcome to Bike Live. Yes, it's very, very warm. Welcome to episode 11 of Bike Live here on Motorsport 101, the show that prides itself on getting absolutely nothing wrong. So let's talk in the next two hours about a show where we got just about everything wrong as we preview the Spanish Grand Prix weekend. The predicted Yamaha whitewash that never happened, the predicted Ducati and Honda dumpster fire, which most certainly didn't happen, uh, as Danny Pedroza led a HRC 1-2 ahead of Marc Marquez and Jorge Lorenzo taking Ducati to the podium for the first time. Uh, we'll also look back on a thrilling Moto3 race, which saw a brand new winner, and a Moto2 race, which didn't quite match those levels of excitement, but it did also produce a first-time winner in the form of Alex Marquez. We'll also talk about the big stories as the safety car hit the wall, of all places, at Jerez, and we'll talk about the newest Brit to the Grand Prix series, as Taron McKenzie departs British Supersport to take the vacant Moto2 seat at Kiefer. Um, so we'll talk all about that over the course of the next two hours. Plenty to get through um, in the company of myself, Lewis Sudeby, and Andre Harrison. Welcome along, Andre. Hello again, ladies and gentlemen. Um, yeah, I mean, this this this, is, this was not a good weekend for us prediction-wise, no. folks. I'm going to be real with you. This might be the worst we've ever done in terms of predicting things that were going to happen. I don't think anybody saw this coming, and um, yeah, I'm still kind of in recovery from it, so bear with us for the next couple of hours. We've got yeah. a lot to break down. Yeah, bear with us. Um, our reputation is at an all-time low, but if you do like what you hear um, over the course of this show, um, then do follow us on Twitter, at motorsport underscore 101. We're also on Facebook, motorsport 101 on there. Um, you can also find us um, on the internet. Our website is motorsport101.net. If you want to find all the information around both of our shows, Bike Live and Motorsport 101. Um, if you want to follow our weekly Google Hangouts, they are on youtube.com forward slash motorsport101 as well. Um, and indeed, you can back us financially if you like us that much that you want to join us um, in trying to make this show and this network as big as we could possibly make it. Patreon.com forward slash Motorsport 101. If you do back us financially, you earn yourselves early access to both of this, Bike Live and Motorsport 101, um, which as we record this went live today. Uh, episode 85, entitled Quien e Fernando Alonso. Dre. <laughs> Never have a Yorkshireman have a Spanish accent like that ever again, please. Ever. Well, that's it, right? <laughs> it is right, technically. Technically. <laughs> who Who is Fernando Alonso uh, is the English translation of that. Um, yeah, Dre, just quickly explain the episode title and tell us what the listeners can hear if they haven't heard it already. Yeah, apparently some Spanish former double world champion went to Indianapolis and drove a car around an oval, and a lot of people were really into it for some reason. Can't possibly imagine why. Re really, honestly, if you thought last week was bad for the lack of things to talk about, <laughs> well, this one kind of takes the cake, really. We had very little to talk about yet. Yeah, we still had a 128-minute show, because that's what we do around here. Uh, us, me, Ryan King, and special guest Katie Fairman making her return to the podcast as well, talking about the flyaway rounds, talking about Fernando Alonso's rookie orientation for the Indy 500, and talking about the revenue splits and just how bad it is for F1 in general. That teams like Force India are making 20 million bucks less than McLaren last year. All, all of that broken down and more on Motorsport 101, episode 85. 
Queerness, Fernando Alonso, which was apparently what was trending during the middle of his test in Spain, because Spain apparently no longer care about Fernando Alonso, which is weird to say the least. But mm. uh, yeah, all of that and much more on SoundCloud and where all good podcasts are available. Yes, and as I say, if you want to find uh, the home of both of our shows, motorsport101.net. Uh, right now, let's talk about Jerez and the Spanish Grand Prix that took place last weekend and how none of it went as we forecast um, a week ago. Um, um, starting starting with the guy that won it. Um, now, we, we kind of, we're, we're kind of always surprised these days when Danny Pedrosa wins a Grand Prix, um, given that he's no longer the main man inside Repsol Honda. Um, Mark Marquez most certainly owns that title. Um, but the way the weekend kind of panned out, like if you, if you forget our ridiculous forecast last week for a moment, Dre, the way the weekend panned out, this was kind of a Danny Pedrosa win that didn't surprise us. Yeah, like if you if, if you took this race in a vacuum and just read it from the top as the weekend went on, Pedrosa was the fastest man in pretty much every single session the week of the weekend, and then won the Grand Prix on a Grand Slam. Um, yeah, very very um, peculiar weekend because again we don't know like because it's weird because Pedrosa's like Pedrosa's more recent wins have have been surprise wins. They've come out of seemingly nowhere. I mean, Masano was a, was a strategy call that you know obviously went perfectly for him. Whereas, like, Mategi last year was a race in, in, in the rain where he saved his tyre and came back in spectacular fashion. This was Pedrosa legitimately being the fastest man on the circuit pretty much all weekend long. And, man, incredibly impressive performance all weekend long from him. Yeah, he was. He was brilliant. And these are the kind of races where we see Danny Pedrosa at his best when he's he's out in front, when he's, he's able to set a pace. Uh, we, we, I'd like to say, we're always surprised these days when Danny Pedrosa wins a Grand Prix, but we almost forget, and he's always perennially underestimated, isn't he, um, in MotoGP, because how many riders can say over the course of their Grand Prix career, and it's a, a 12-year MotoGP career now for Danny Pedrosa, that he has now taken a victory in every single one of them. Yeah, and not to mention he's won a Grand Prix every year for the last 16 years of him in Grand Prix motorcycle racing. No one in history has ever gone 16 years in a row with at least one win, not even Valentino Rossi, due to questionable career decisions. Hmm. But in, in any case, it's a testament to just how great a rider Danny Pedrosa is. And I've said this time and again, the man is a, is a, is a historic level of talent. It's just the unfortunate nature of injuries, bad luck, and basically juggling you know juggling the fact that we've had five or six hall of fame talents enter MotoGP in the last decade with you know marquez and lorenzo stoner valentino you know even even some of the second tier talents like carl crutchlow and dre davizioso have had standout marquee moments in their own right and pedrosa has has struggled to find his, his true place amongst those guys over the last few years but he is still an incredible MotoGP rider. It's easy to forget. He's five foot two and weighs seven stone, and he's throwing around a two hundred and fifty brake horsepower motorcycle mm. that weighs two and a half times he does. It, and that's just kind of nuts to even consider. And yet, this was his thirtieth top flight MotoGP Grand Prix victory. Um, the same as Mark Marquez, which says a lot about Marquez too, to be honest. But even so, like thirty top fly victories for Pedrosa now, and that fifty three in all classes as well now for Danny Pedrosa. Fifty three career wins in Grand Prix um, to go with his fifteen in two fifty and eight in one two fives as well. He, he is he is a legend of the sport. There, there is no doubt about that. It's just it's just the MotoGP title that really eludes him. But will it continue to elude him, Dre? I mean, it, it's 
it is still very early in this season, and I, I say we're still waiting for this season to kind of settle down and shake out, but given how competitive it is, you wonder whether it will ultimately shake out or whether this is the season we're going to get where it's just going to change from weekend to weekend, depending on who gets it right um, over the course of the weekend. It could be that sort of 2012 Formula 1 scenario where if, if one team or one rider just gets it spot on and gets it dialed in over a weekend, this can happen to them. It's starting to look that way, isn't it? I mean, there, I, I, think, I think I'm fair in saying through the first four rounds, there has not been one standout rider so far this season. That Every rider has had a hiccup, and every rider so far in the top four has had a true moment of brilliance in there as well. You know, had a dominant weekend where they've got everything to click and they've gone off. Valentino's been the Mr. Consistency so far, except for this round. That's been his blip. Pedrosa's had a solid third place at Cota. And then obviously dominated this weekend. Vinales shut everybody up in the opening round. Um, and obviously Marquez winning in America for, for, uh, yet again and has already recovered the deficit he, he had when he when he fell um, in Argentina. So ev- every one of the top four has had ups and downs already this season. There's no, I don't think there's a single like marquee standout rider so far because they've all shown strengths and weaknesses. And that is a wonderful thing as the casual fan here. We're now going to be sitting here wondering week to week just who is going to come out here on top because we mentioned this earlier. This is traditionally a Yamaha circuit, and if anything, a Jorge Lorenzo special of when it comes to tracks on the calendar. This is one of the ones where Yamaha tend to go stronger. We all saw Valentino Rossi dominate last year ahead of a Yamaha 1-2 finish, and this year it was the total opposite of that, and it was a track where Honda was, was dominant all weekend long. So... A very, very bizarre turn events on these Michelin tyres and whatnot. But hey, for, for us, the casual fan that's watching, this is fantastic. It is fantastic. And just to emphasize the point of how mixed up it's been in 2017 so far, there are only four riders after four races that have scored points in every single round. Um, Valentino Rossi is one of them, of course. He's had a third, two seconds, and a tenth so far. We'll talk about his tenth place a little bit later on and how that happened. Um, he's one of them. Jonas Folger, the rookie, is another. Um, three of his four have been top ten finishes. Scott Renning has scored in every single round. And Hector Barbara, who's 16th in the championship, he scored in every single round, but none of those were any higher than 12th. So only four riders after four races have got a 100% record of finishing in the points. Um, so just about everybody has had some sort of blip or has had some sort of crash which has caused them to DNF at some stage. And, um, yeah, let's talk about Honda and how this victory came about. I mean, this was not a circuit that we were particularly expected... Well, not expected to favour them, but we expected it to favour Yamaha more, I guess yeah. is the is the way of describing it. So how much of this Honda victory can we put down to Honda finding something and improving? And how much can we put it down to Yamaha basically disappearing from the gap that probably would have been ahead of them? Yes, um, this is yeah. the best answer I could give you on that one. Um, yeah, yeah there's, I don't think. I, mean, I think it's still because it wasn't early. just because it wasn't just the Repsols that were up there. I mean, it was an all Honda front row, and Jack Miller was competitive too. Absolutely, every Honda on the board was pretty strong this weekend in their own right. Again, Crutchlow probably finishes in the top four at worst if he's, if he's able to bring it home in one piece. So. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that Honda were definitely stronger. I don't know how much if they found something or not. It's hard to say. I mean, we got Le Mans coming up next weekend, and that, I think, will be a real sign as to whether Honda's come back or not because that is a another Yamaha circuit to the bone, another Jorge Lorenzo special, so mm-hmm. to speak. So we'll see and where a Honda... Of, a lot of acceleration zones there, which the Honda doesn't like. 
a lot, yeah, a lot of slow corners, a lot of a lot of acceleration zones where Honda tends to struggle. So again, if Honda really has found something in the electronics or in in their engine setup or something, we'll know then. But in this case, yeah, like, I found it very bizarre that Honda were able to make it work here. And everybody was caught out by this one that Honda was able to make it work here. I don't think anyone's really been able to explain why. No, I mean, no, I mean mm-hmm. Dane Pedrosa has given the the team a lot of credit that they've they've improved the setup from the first three rounds where he wasn't completely happy with his bike. Of course, Danny Pedrosa couldn't make his tire last um, at, at the Circuit of the Americas a, a couple of weeks prior. Um, and they also seem to be getting a hold of the, the new Big Bang engine they've been using. It's not just... Uh, you might hear that, that phrase a lot during the course of this show, particularly when we talk about KTM later on. Um, but Honda abandoned their Screamer concept engine for a Big Bang this season. And perhaps they're starting to get, get their head around it now and, and make that work. Um, with the mm-hmm. spec electronics that we have to use now, so some of it may come down to that. That Honda have just got got a handle on all that now, and they're making that bike work without the the electronics, um, basically struggling to tame the engine inside the motorcycle. And Mark Marquez, fo- <coughs> following his teammate home in second place um, in that Grand Prix, it's not like Mark Marquez to be happy with a second place because he's he's here to win. But given the disappointments of the Yamahas and given the mixed-up nature of the championship and how many points he needed to make up after round two, I guess second place is a result that Mark will sit back and say, yeah, I'll take that. Well, let's put it to you this way. Have you ever seen Marquez so happy to finish in second? <laughs> like that, yeah. that, That's not normal for him. Um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think if you'd have offered Marquez second before the weekend had started, I think he would have taken it. Um, yeah, because he, very... he, he would have probably thought he'd have been second to a Yamaha. <laughs> Most likely, that might have been also part of the problem. Um, second to a teammate that was, you know, some way back going into the weekend, even despite um, the incident that Marquez found in Argentina, I think Marquez will gladly take that second place. Um, it was a trouble-free second place. He, he, had, he had a bit of an early early fight with uh, Johan Zarco, but he, he weathered that storm. Yeah, he the, the he did try it. He, he, I, saw, I saw the usual Marquez trick of pulling the pin with about seven to go and seeing what he had. But Pedrosa was always in control, and I think once Marquez knew it, I think he was like, "Yep, second place will do nicely." And um, I think with both the Yamahas falling back to where they were, again, I think he'll gladly take that second place. And a, a, a smart, intelligent ride from Marquez didn't overexert himself took the 20 points that were available and, and now look he's only four points off the t- championship lead and the argentina fall has pretty much been wiped out already mm, yeah it is and, and it's interesting to hear mark marquez uh, sort of analyze the way we the weekend panned out because he says that he was surprised to be on the podium because normally um for his riding style particularly for mark that hereth is not um, one of his better tracks he says i spent years trying to understand it but this year i was able to push a little bit more and more until the last few laps um as you mentioned he tried for the victory but saw it was dangerous so slowed down again um he checked where valentino and Vinales were and said to myself okay second place is fine it looks like our strong points were strong in hereth our weak points a little less a surprise for all the honda teams so even mark was surprised uh, how competitive <laughs> honda were um he also refers to the fact he says we're at a good level now and my target is to stay there until Catalunya, because I know that these races are not my favourite ones, referring to Le Mans, Mugello, Catalunya. Um, after Argentina, it looked like the Yamaha riders were unbeatable, but after Jerez, it looks like the exact opposite. Maybe it'll all change at Le Mans, but the championship is a long one. Um, and he's already in championship mode there, isn't he, Dre? Because after after Argentina, um, I think we were both in agreement on this show, that if, if, if at all, it was going to take him until the summer to get those 40-odd points back, but he's got them back in two rounds. 
it's it's funny like mark marquez always finds a way to surprise us even when he's not actually been that great it's 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 it's, he works in very mysterious ways at 93 but yeah you're absolutely right this was this was genuinely a surprise i thought i thought this was going to be the start of a maverick tear after after kota and turns out we've got the complete opposite and now we we don't know what's going to happen going into the mon um next weekend but as you say the deficit has been wiped out in two races we're back to pretty much level pegging going into Le Mans and if he can ride out the storm of Le Mans and Mugello and then come back at Catalonia which is a track he should favor a little bit more now they're running the F1 layout as opposed to the the old MotoGP layout if he can get to to Catalonia and he's still in a relatively good position then heck it it starts to turn around for him after that we've got Aston after that and then the Saxon ring which is Marquez land to the bone so if he can get to Catalonia and she's still in range, then that I think Marquez will take that as an excellent first half of the season, given the Argentina fall. Absolutely, and it does look like we're in for a real long game now with this World Championship because the the predicted Yamaha head-to-head between Maverick, Maverick and Valentino for the title that we perhaps thought we were going to get after Argentina isn't the case now. Before we talk about how badly their weekend went wrong... Um, how many championship contenders do you think we have now? Because I think at the start of the season, we perhaps thought maybe two, two and a half, if you if you think Valentino Rossi is competitive or not. Um, then we thought it was perhaps only two. Now, four? Maybe even more than that? Uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm still not completely convinced on Valentino yet. Because 10 uh, points covers the top four right now. Yeah, exactly. 10 points covers the top four, which is, I can't remember the last time four and were that close, in all, in all fairness. Um... It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out again where Pedrosa fits in. I don't think Pedrosa's got the head-to-head now so over Marquez over a season to be a true title threat. I think that's going to be the ultimate problem for Pedrosa. He, head-to-head, he always loses out to Marquez. He doesn't give him enough of a fight in that department. Um, and if Marquez is in championship mode, then even less of an opportunity for Pedrosa to come back. Valentino is one and three head-to-head against Maverick Vignale so far this season in races now. And the one was a race where Maverick didn't even finish. Exactly. And that's what I think. Okay, Rossi will score points in bunches. That's what he does. But at the same time, if he he has to start beating Vinales more frequently if he's going to win this championship. And we all know Maverick's got the speed of, out of the pair of them. It's going to be a matter of Maverick can, can iron out the mistakes. Mm. There's question marks over all four of these guys right now. But I still think it's Vinales versus Marquez with maybe Rossi on the fringe. For now, I, I, I've not seen enough of Pedrosa to call him a title threat just yet, and I'm not convinced by Valentino Rossi that he's got enough head-to-head speed over over, over Maverick Vinales to win the title. No, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I mean, yeah, championships can be won against your teammate just by taking advantage on the days where they have bad days or fail to finish. Nico Rosberg will tell you that. Um, so, so Valentino Rossi may well still take that route to Shanti for this title but where on earth did Yamaha's weekend go so badly wrong Dre I mean we'll talk about the the Yamaha that did go well in Joan Zarco a little bit later so it wasn't like Yamaha's couldn't work around Jerez um but why did the factory bikes not work um good question um like I you know what it is it's gonna be a very subtle situation of press conferences from here on in where Yamaha's gonna try like they're gonna try very hard 
not to blame the tires, but then yeah. subtly blame the tires. Yes. Um, that, that's what it feels like to me right now. I, I think the tires didn't really work with them this weekend. And um, Valentino Rossi, I think, came out after the race and said it, it wasn't. It, uh, I'm losing my best Valentino Rossi impression. Uh, it wasn't a uh, happy marriage between the bike and the, the tires. Um, yeah, for, we're all for two for uh, foreign accents on this show, aren't we? <laughs> I tried. Like it's normally, a bit, it's normally a bit better than that. Unfortunately, that's my brother. He'll tell you. Yep. Uh, but but um, yeah, like I said, like it wasn't a happy marriage between the bike and the tires. For those who didn't listen in English, um, <laughs> he, he said it himself that you know he, the tires didn't work for him. Maverick in the test the next day he said this said pretty much the same thing. He didn't like the new tires of compound, and he was very confused that he was able to run a much faster pace on test day compared to the race pace the day before, where Vinales thought, "Oh, hang on a minute." If I ride any harder, I'm going to crash this thing. You, you know, like Maverick said after the race, after finishing, I think it was in sixth place in the end. He said straight up, "I felt like I was going to crash out there," hmm. and, and that was and that's not a good sign from the guy that's only had. It's easy to forget it's only his fourth ever race on a Yamaha, and maybe that's starting to show a little bit, and that could be a problem as we go forward. Where you know Maverick's got TV problems, and this bike still isn't really batting in its optimum right now by the looks of it, because. If Valentino Rossi is complaining about these tires still, and we saw him get passed by a factory friggin' Aprilia um, towards the end, the end of that race, I have to openly and bite my tongue and admit maybe Valentino was onto something when he mentioned the struggles he's had. It looks like he may have had legitimate concerns. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, we were talking about this off air before we started the show, and yeah, those Valentino Rossi comments that dominated the winter headlines came screaming back to me when he was plummeting back down the order. Because for me, I was watching that thinking, this is the race that Valentino Rossi's been afraid of all winter. Um, this is the scenario that he's been afraid of happening um, when he's been struggling with the front of that bike and struggling with the tyres. It was because this scenario might happen. Uh, and and, and the, it's now... The chickens have now come home to roost on this one with Valentino, finishing down in 10th. Um, I mean, if he did finish 10th, and he might well be, be grateful for those six points later in the season. Um, mm. Those six points are certainly better than crashing, let's put it that way. Um, yeah. But but let's not... I don't think anyone can, uh, unless you're BT Sport perhaps, um, <laughs> try, try and dress this up as a good weekend for Valentino. The only positive that came out of this, the only positive, is that he still leads the championship. That is it um, for Valentino Rossi um, from Jerez. And, and from Yamaha's point of view, you know that they're in trouble when even Maverick's struggling. Exactly, Maverick. Ha, ha, again, like he is, his pace level is relentless. It is unlike anything we've seen since '93. Rocked up in the class all those years ago. It, like, if he is struggling out there, then the bike's got a problem because Maverick's speed and consistency over the start of the season has been fantastic. The first two rounds, he looked practically unbeatable. And, you know, sure, he made a rookie mistake at, at Cota, but again, he was running Marquez closer, arguably his best round on the calendar. So if even Vinales is struggling, then the Yamahas might have a fundamental problem with these tyres that they haven't quite solved yet. And that that could be a problem. And as you say, if, if, if Valentino Rossi, the only possible come out this weekend was that he's now still leading the championship only by two points over his teammate, Hodgson. Um, yeah. Yeah, like, so, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, Rossi's almost seemingly above criticism at this point, even though that was a very poor performance by his... When was the last time Valentino Rossi finished a, a race where he crossed the line in 10th place? 
yeah, I was, I was. Yeah, because I don't think he's. Yeah, because the, the last time that'll have happened will have probably been a race where he crashed and remounted. Um, I think you're probably, I think you're probably going back to the Ducati days um, for the last time that Valentino Rossi actually finished a race that low down without a crash along the way, um, because he's always you'd been. To, yeah, you'd have to go back to Le Mans 2013 for the last time Valentino finished a race that far down, twelfth place um on that one and yeah we finished one minute and 16 seconds of the wins. i think he did crash and remount it was a race that pedrosa won over crutch that was all, that was a wet race wasn't it um at Le Mans. Ah. um so uh, yeah I'm, I'll, I'll look that one up while while we're talking um but but what, what i found interesting just reading mcn and the, the comments from lin jarvis who uh who states we're not in crisis um which begs oh, the question okay. which begs the question who thought yamaha were in crisis after one bad race um that would be my first point on that one um but but exactly but um but yeah what what i do find interesting is the the comments about the design of the bike um because he says the rider doesn't design the bike he gives feedback and the engineers design the bike from that one of the developments this year was to give us better tire life at the end of the race and that may mean we might not be at the front in qualifying if you asked valentino to design a bike maybe it would be more like last year's but the engineers are trying to design something from a different perspective and he understands that Oh. Do, do, do you understand? Do you not spot the problem there, Dre? Why is a team designing a bike that their rider might not necessarily be happy with? Especially one that, you know, you openly admitted you're building the team around Valentino, especially after he's been a runner-up the last, you know, the last three seasons in MotoGP after Lorenzo was gone. So Rossi surely is your yardstick. If you're going into this season, you're building a bike around Valentino, surely. Like, that's the guy you want to win the title. That's your breadwinner, and that has been your most consistent threat over the last three seasons now. So why is Yamaha suddenly changing what, on theory, was still a winning formula? Like, like it's it's weird to me, because, like, Lorenzo was still definitely quick as he always was last year. Valentino Rossi, again, scored 250-plus points, and... You know, or well, 249 to be precise, but it's close enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, it was a, it was a low scoring season anyway. Uh, but like I said, like they they are capable of winning multiple multiple races over the course of a season. Like why are they suddenly turning away from what Valentino wants to do? Like I'm not saying that he is the be all and end all, but he's a yardstick. He's been with the team. Yeah, now. I don't, I don't think it's asking too much to suggest that a team would design a bike to suit its riders. It's his fifth year back. Like, why are you why are you turning away from that? Like, what, what, what like what do you seek to gain by deviating from the formula here? Yeah, and and Valentino Rossi clearly wants a bike that is more akin to last year's, and last year's bike finished fourth, um, which we'll talk about um, very shortly. I mean. This might well be more of a Valentino problem than a Maverick problem. Maverick will probably still in the long run be happy with the bike he's got now. But do you reckon we might be closing in on a scenario later this season where Valentino in particular might take the Marc Marquez 2015 route and go back to a semi-2016 bike here? Might that be the best route for Valentino? Depends, I suppose. If, if it gets... Because when he's getting beaten by his old bike, that's surely going to send a few alarm bells. Yeah, gosh, um, that that can't be a good sign. And yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think um, I think it's scary that the Valentino Rossi looked that uncompetitive um, this weekend. That's never Valentino because we, we after all we we all we do name him Mister Sunday Man after all. Mm-hmm. And for him to struggle that much is is alarming to say the least. Especially given that uh, as you say, Johan Zarco and Jonas Volger on last year's bike have had moments where they've they've been they've been better than him and. 
Yeah, like I said, I, I don't know why you turn away from Valentino's input on this one. Like, you you made the effort to bring him back. He's won you five championships. And, yeah, just just very, very bizarre behavior from Yamaha. So, I don't, again, I don't see what the overall net positive was from going away from that. And, as you say, like, they could go back to something. Like, if, if, Rossi, if Rossi was more comfortable on last year's bike, Shouldn't that be your yardstick in the first place? Yeah, wouldn't you evolve from there rather than exactly. rather than basically rip up the rip up the the broad the, the, the sheet and start again? Um, Lynn Jarvis also says the engineers believe our new bike has its own benefits, and to be frank, it's useful for us to have Zarco so fast because we can analyze his data. Uh, racing is a matter of compromises, and we have a lot of things to work on. You have to remember that we won the first two races, and Valentino scored three podiums, so I don't think we're in crisis. We had a very unexpected result in Jerez with a strange problem. Um, so uh, I think that paragraph. That last paragraph is kind of the point, really. It's it might well be just a one-off, and the Yamahas are right back up the front again in Le Mans. We'll have to wait and see. Um, just to finish off on the point we made earlier on, that um, French Grand Prix of 2013, Valentino Rossi did have a crash in that one. Um, so we do have to go back to Valencia 2012, his last race for Ducati, where, when he finished 10th. Um, that is the last time Valentino Rossi made the checkered flag of a race without crashing and finished that low down, um, which kind of just puts into perspective how badly wrong it went for him. Um, how about his, um, well, his sort of semi-teammate, if you like, Joan Zarco on a Yamaha, um, who proved that Yamahas do work around her F3. What a spectacular performance from Johan Zarco. This man is the real deal. Um, oh, oh, God, rider of, the, rider of the weekend outside of Pedrosa for me. That was fantastic. It's it's, rider of the season. Like, like just, just this man is just taken to MotoGP like a duck to water. And it was a very good point. I think it was Steve English to put it up, statistically speaking. Only Mark Marquez and Jorge Lorenzo have had better MotoGP starts to their careers than Johan Zarco has had since entering the class. And we've got to remember, he could have potentially had a race win to his name. Yeah, he's, he's had a crash from the lead, and then he's gone fifth, fifth, fourth from there. Fantastic stuff. Consistency, great overall speed. Maybe he shredded his tyres a little bit too hard at the start of the race, and that's what made him fall off the podium in the end compared to Jorge Lorenzo. But... I highly recommend you go out of your way to go onto MotoGP's website. It's free, by the way, as long as you register an account there. Um, and watch the fantastic 360-degree onboard video of his first two laps. Because the second lap, where I think he passes Vinales, Crutchlow, and I want to say... Valentino as well. He, it was Valentino. All, like, Annie and Oni. He passed those four dudes with pinpoint precision. On the opening two laps. Yeah, um, and those aren't slow riders, guys. He's overtaking. No, They're legends. Like, you're talking about two of the greatest riders we've ever seen in there, and Zarko made, made mincemeat out of them. Incredibly impressive stuff. Highly recommend you go out of your way to see it. But in any case, another fantastic Zarko performance. Yeah, he just seems to have this, this, this knack of... Of, and this is almost the opposite of what we were used to seeing in Moto2 because Franco Morbidelli warned Valentino Rossi about how strong Zarco was at the end of a race um, mm -hmm. from his Moto2 days but it seems almost the opposite Zarco seems to have this level of confidence and, and pace at the start of a Grand Prix um, that, that so many riders don't know that don't have and it's the kind of thing we always used to see from Jorge Lorenzo wasn't it Dre on the Yamaha where he just had this incredible early pace that would gap the field Zarco's not doing that um, but he does seem to have this level of confidence early in a Grand Prix that, that 
enables him just to make guys look like they're standing still. Um, mm. He even he even said he even tried to follow Danny for the lead at one stage before he realised he was too fast and he almost crashed trying to keep up. Um, so he says, so when Mark didn't wait and overtook me, it was difficult to stay with him anymore. Um, all that's really missing at the moment for Zarko is a podium, um, but the way he's going, he won't be having to wait too much longer for it. Yeah, the way he's going, it's definitely coming. Um, again, like that Yamaha 2016 bike clearly was a very, very good bike in any mm. case. That, um, well, was, it you, was it you that said this on Twitter? It kind of puts into perspective how badly the two Yamaha riders were last year. Exactly, because that bike was clearly capable of winning multiple rounds. Getting wrong, they still did to a degree, but both of their riders were very disappointing uh, in the course of uh, their overall seasons. But Zarco as a rookie, has never ridden a MotoGP bike before on this level, has almost immediately gone into MotoGP and has been exceptional. Um, you know, nearly winning, has had three top fives since then. Again, like, if, if what it would take is a, top, a couple of big hits to have a bad day, and Zarko's finishing on the podium. He's just been that good. Mm, he is, and what, what's impressing me as well about, about Zarko is that and this this does remind me a little bit of Mark Marquez in that he's not he's not really paying much attention to who are on who is on the bike ahead of him. Like you see in so many riders, take Daniel Petrucci at Valencia those years ago when Valentino was coming from the back of the grid. He saw Valentino behind him and it basically frightened him off the road. Um, yeah. and he was almost scared of chasing him down at Silverstone that year as well. Zarco just seems to have no regard for reputations, does he? Um, and no, he doesn't seem to have any sort of intimidation. As you as you mentioned, those riders he was passing on that second lap, the likes of Rossi and Maverick, that's a good trait to have, isn't it, for a rider? That's a, that's a trait of a rider that's going to the very top, that he has no respect for reputations. No. Uh, and again, like there is a level of intimidation in being in MotoGP. And then, you know, we've seen... In the past, guys like Dino Petrucci that have caved to guys like Valentino in the past, they are intimidated by some of the bigger names in here. And we've seen some guys that aren't used to being that high up the field make mistakes. Yet, Zarco has come in and outside of outside of, of, of Qatar at the opening round, he's been fearless. He has, he's had no problem taking, taking no matter who's come on. I mean, again, the, the pass attempt on Valentino Rossi at Cota... Mm kind of summed it all up like that was Valentino Rossi he was trying to pass on a corner where you don't normally pass on yeah, and Zarco's uh, attitude is this is just another guy yeah like this I don't care who you are I'm going I'm coming down the inside of you whether you like it or not prepare yourself basically and yeah he's been fearless and that's a good trait to have and you know if I've always said, if you're going to do it, act like you've been there before. Mm, absolutely. And uh, I think there are a lot of factory teams, not just the Yamaha factory team, that are really taking a close look at this guy now. Uh, because I think he's, even though we knew he was good, because you know you don't win two Moto2 titles in a row without being very, very good. Um, but I think even a lot of teams, and I think a lot of people, including ourselves, are just realising this guy's even better than we thought he was um, once he's gone on a MotoGP bike. Um, Zarco taking fourth in the end. Um, he followed close behind uh, Jorge Lorenzo, who claimed his first podium for Ducati uh, and his first podium of the season. Um we said this on the last show. In fact, I said, I think it was word for word, if there is one circuit on the calendar that is not made for a Ducati, it's Jerez. So how on earth did Jorge get it on the podium, Dre? Maybe it wasn't as bad as he thought. I mean, it's funny because Cal Crutchlow on Friday came out and said, it's not that Ducati is bad around here. It's that Adrian Vizioso hates this place. Mm. Um, well, even he finished and, fifth. And even, even he had a good day. He finished in fifth. So 
again, it looks like Ducati is, is, is slowly started to make some progress. They were they were they were decent at Kota, and they looked they, they looked a bit better compared to how the start of the season was with them. And they seem to have taken it one step further now, where Lorenzo had a very clear podium, and Davizioso was the best of the rest in that outside of that leading group as well. So it looks like you know Lorenzo is getting better by the round and. I do find it funny, though, Sotheby, that um, Ducati was celebrating with selfies, loud open gasps and open mm. arms and garage selfies for a third-place finish. Yeah, were they doing very, that for... Very Arsenal. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 exactly. Um, yeah, well, they, they do get a trophy for that. Unfortunately, you don't get a trophy for fourth, like Arsenal claim they do. Um, but, um, but no, it... I don't remember them doing that for Dovi in Qatar. Um, I'll be honest. I don't remember that kind of reaction. I know he just missed out on a win. Um, but... I mean, where do you think that comes from then? That that kind of react. Do you think this is kind of a reaction of Jorge's been so, or he's found it so difficult in the first few races, and it's almost validation that this partnership can work because they must have had their doubts. I'm sure they. I'm sure they must have had during the opening rounds where you know they had Lorenzo had a terrible start to the season, and you know he looks like a different rider already, and he, he looks like Lorenzo has looked better by the round, um, and he's again. I think I said before, we think we've underestimated just how hard a job this was going to be for Jorge Lorenzo, but he seems to you know, really be starting to find himself now. And that was a very strong looking podium finish. That was like the Jorge of old for a minute there. And if he's only going to get better as time goes on. So yeah, Ducati, I've got every, every reason to be optimistic. It, although it is easy to forget this team did win two Grand Prix last year. They did. Like, um... so, yeah, and as I say, they nearly won the first race of this year. I, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to criticise selfies and celebrations for a third too much because uh, if my football team finishes this season in 17th, there's going to be celebratory selfies, pitch invasions, the whole lot. So, 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 uh, so, 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 I'm not going to. I'm not going to criticise them too much. Yeah, I'm still miserable. Um, for anyone who knows uh, my football allegiances, it's whole city, by the way. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I'm not going to criticise Ducati too much for that. But as I say, I, I think part of that is because of just sort of the, the frustration and the despair of the first few rounds. I mean, Jorge was putting a brave face on it um, by coming away from bad weekends, talking positively. Um, but for me, that's what it was. That was Jorge putting a brave face on it and not wanting to lose face because he's basically put his neck on the line. He's basically done what Valentino Rossi said he didn't have, and that's basically show some balls and, and go to Ducati. And he can't then turn around after three races and sort of act as if he's got it wrong. He has to talk, talk the good game here and talk about how good it's going and how well it's going. Um, but he's now finally got a result to prove himself right, if you like. And um, Jorge Lorenzo, for the first time this season, was ahead of Andre Davizioso. Now, Davizioso, as you mentioned, doesn't particularly like Jerez all that much. Um, but for Jorge to beat Davizioso comfortably does tell us that Jorge is figuring it out and perhaps the victories that we expected Jorge to take as the year went on, and was also the Austria. Jorge now has some light at the end of the tunnel, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if he, if he can continue with this, you know, take a win in Austria, and then who knows if the, if, we, if we get rain somewhere. I mean, that's going to be a big, interesting notification. What happens when Lorenzo goes on a Ducati in the wet? We mm. haven't really seen that um, over a race yet, and that's going to be very interesting. Yeah, because the bike but... loves the wet, but Jorge hates it. Exactly. So we're going to have to wait and see how that goes. But yeah, I think you're right. There is a vision here now. Like, again, if he can take Austria, which is going to be an expected win for Ducati going into this season, if he can take that and if he can get a few more podiums here and there and, you know, maybe get back into the top five or six in the championship, 
I think they will take that as a solid foundation for Lorenzo to build on for for next year. So there's definitely something there for him available if he, if he can maximize these results. But we're going to have to wait and see how Chicati play out compared to the rest of the field because this is still very early days. Yeah, I think the next two races are interesting ones because historically the, the Ducati's gone quite well at Le Mans. Valentino got the old Ducati on the podium there, didn't he, um, back in the day. Davizioso's had a few podiums at Le Mans too. And Jorge loves the place. He, he won there by a street last year mm-hmm. um, on the Yamaha. And of course, Mugello follows that where Yunone put it on the pole um, a year or two back when he famously didn't jump the start um and um and of course it'll go brilliantly down that long front straight in Mugello so the next two races may provide opportunities for Lorenzo and once Lorenzo's got his confidence back he's a completely different rider if there was ever a confidence rider in MotoGP it's Jorge Lorenzo so if he now suddenly has a bike that he feels he can work with you've you've got a completely different rider there uh, in Jorge Lorenzo so so it is going to be interesting I think Le Mans is going to be fascinating because as I say that is a that is a circuit that Lorenzo historically goes very very well at and Ducati tend to perform slightly above average around there as well um so we'll keep an eye on ducati um, at the next grand prix uh, in a week's time um third and fifth for them lorenzo third ahead of zarco and then came to so then came the first of the yamahas in the form of maverick vinales um now that top six does not include cal crutchlow and um cal crutchlow had a complicated weekend it's fair to say um qualified on the front row but that wasn't really the uh, story we were all talking about on saturday because of the uh, infamous wasp that flew down his leathers uh, on saturday um yeah it takes a lot i think on this show to make us feel sorry for cal crutch though but i think we all had a bit of sympathy for him on that one. Oh god no uh, that, that that would be my worst nightmare oh no i'm gonna ride this bike at 180 miles an hour oh my god a wasp has flung inside my stew ow um yeah. Yeah, I, I would not want any of that. I do not envy Cal Crutchlow for basically getting the heebie-jeebies on, on Saturday with uh, a wasp flying inside his suit and stinging him about six times, apparently. That just sounds yeah. all sorts of awful. I think he was in Park Ferme after qualifying on the front row and he had to immediately take his jumpsuit off and just see where the bits of wasp had ended up uh, after stinging him, basically, repeatedly, um, the poor guy. But, uh, yeah, luckily, nothing serious. I don't know if wasp can actually be fatal in some cases if you get stung enough times. But, uh, luckily, it was dead on arrival, literally, yeah. in this case. But, uh, yeah, oh, God, I would, I, would, I would not want to be Kyle Crutchlow in that situation. That no. is no unfortunately he then buzzed off the road early in the grand prix as well um which which what he says claimed he claims it cost him the easiest podium finish um that he would have ever had he says i could have very easily been on the podium because the pace wasn't very fast from jorge or zarco on the laps after i crashed and um you kind of have to believe him dre given that the first non-honda was 15 seconds off the win um cal's usually not far off danny and mark's pace and he's not usually good enough to beat them but he's usually not that far behind them and you kind of believe Cal don't you when he says that that he should have very easily been on the podium yeah I'd say so given that you know they they were fast Hmm. but Uh, how many times do we say this about Cal how he could have been on the podium but he's decked it it's 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 the Cal Crutchlow trait. What's on one hand giveth the other taketh away, and mm. uh, for every great Cal Crutchlow performance, there's about three times he'll bin it, unfortunately, and that's just the nature of Cal. That I think he, he tries a little bit too hard sometimes when he sees the open goal in front of him, and next thing you know he blazes it over, and that's Cal's problem. I mean, like instead of being a, a points rider, he's more of the home run hitter, and unfortunately he's he struck out too many times and. God, that's way too many metaphors there. Yeah. But in any, in, in any case, that's that's Cal Crutchlow to the bone. He just he just crashes it too many times for me to take him ultimately seriously as a as an alien level guy. Is that he, he just makes too many errors? 
Mm, yeah, he does. And then he wasn't the only Honda rider lamenting his luck at the end of the Grand Prix either because uh, Jack Miller could quite easily have been in that top 10 as well. Of course, he qualified very, very well, got himself directly into Q2, um, which was an impressive performance for him. He's now becoming a regular fixture in the top 10 uh, of a race weekend now, Jack Miller. Um, on that Honda. Um, he also saw his Grand Prix ending the gravel trap, although, Dre, his ended with a little bit of assistance, and he didn't take it all that well. Um, yeah, okay, hard to feel. Okay, it's, okay. it's, it's interesting, because Miller, yeah, you've you got to feel a bit bad for him, because he was take, he was unfortunately collected by Alvaro Bautista making a mistake around the backside of the circuit. He, um, Miller had, had nowhere to go on that one and had, had to go down. But, uh, Jack, listen... You, you can't you can't shove another rider like like that. I mean, you look at other examples where Alicia Spagaro and Danny Pedrosa have taken another guy out by accident and immediately apologise, refusing to check the other guy is okay. Jack Miller shoves the man. Yeah. Uh, and, and then, ki- and then kicked his motorcycle. He then kicked his Ducati. Your bike is shit. And yeah. then he was shoved for good measure. It's like Miller copped a 1,000 euro fine for that one. Yeah. Um, right. My so, bike doesn't work. I'm going to make sure his doesn't either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna kick the spark plug out. That'll fix it. Um, yeah, just, uh, just, just, just excellence from Jack Miller more than anything else. Like a bit of the old Jack Aston hasn't gone away, um, for better or worse. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, not the not the weekend that Jack was envisaging, given how well it had started. Alicia Spargro, who Dre mentioned earlier on giving Valentino Rossi a bloody nose late in the Grand Prix and finishing ninth, um, which we shouldn't lose sight of how good a result that is for a prettier. We we kind of compare it to how well Aleish went in Qatar, and of course it's nowhere near as good as that, but ninth for a prettier, given who's ahead of him, um, is a very, very good result for Aleish. Um, so he deserves a lot of credit, but if we're going to give credit to one manufacturer, I think, on this show, I think we have to give it to KTM, who were solidly at the back of the grid in the first three rounds of the season and found the thick end of a second and a half per lap from Kota to Jerez and are now solidly midfield. Where did this come from? Oh, yeah. The, two the big were, bang. The big bang. And, uh, yeah, the switching from the screamer to the big bang engine has seemingly made KTM so much faster. Um, again, immediately becoming a midfield team again. Uh, well, again, because they're brand new. But this, this this was tremendous progress from KTM, and it, it was hard not to be impressed by that. But, and it wasn't just one rider either. Both Bradley Smith and Paul Spagger were lapping near identical in terms of pace. Unfortunately, Paul... Had a, had a pretty nasty accident um, in the race itself, which obviously caused the DNF, and luckily he was okay. Um, but yeah, turn, I think turn 12 was causing a lot of problems that weekend. But uh, yeah, like I said, overall, KTM has made some tremendous progress, and uh, nice to see some of the investment already starting to pay off. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> MCN have done a great graphic on this just to il- illustrate how much progress they've made. And in the first three races of the season, Qatar, Argentina, and Cota, KTM were 2.8 seconds, 3.1 seconds, and 3.5 seconds, respectively, off pole position. Um, Now, Cota is the largest of those gaps, naturally, given that it's a circuit that tends to stretch them all out. But in Jerez, they were just one second off pole position, and Paul Spargo and Bradley Smith were just three-tenths of getting that KTM into Q2, um, which would have been an astonishing effort. Um, And they both qualified, I think they qualified 15th and 16th, um, the two KTMs, which is a sensational progress. Um, that they've made and it, it kind of puts them Dre where we thought they'd be at the start of the season I mean we have to always give them a bit of a pass given that they're a new team so when they're down at the back we kind of have to give them a bit of a pass and say well they're new to MotoGP but mm-hmm. this is kind of where we expected KTM to be 
yeah, like I thought they'd be bottom end of the points, roughly. And yeah, they are right now by the looks of it, bottom end of the points. So you can't say much far, much fairer than that. Um, again, we'll have to wait and see whether other teams, you know, move forward and then again, KTM move back and we'll see how the development race rolls out. But that was a tremendous result for KTM given their early progress. And, you know, it's again, something to build a footnote on for the future. Yeah, one negative, I suppose, uh, for KTM is um, Paul Spargaro, who crashed out of the Grand Prix. He followed Cal Crutchlow, quite literally, into the very same gravel trap um, that his Grand Prix ended in. So Paul didn't make it into the points. Bradley Smith did in 14th. Um, and if he'd probably told KTM at the start of the weekend that they were going to finish nine seconds behind Valentino Rossi, they might have well taken that. <laughs> but unfortunately, that <laughs> says more about Valentino's race than it does about Bradley's, who came home uh, in 14th. The one manufacturer that we haven't mentioned is Suzuki. That's probably for the best. Um, yeah. Here's the result. Danny Pedrosa, the winner from Mark Marquez. Honda won two. Lorenzo, third for Ducati. Zarco, the first Yamaha home in fourth. Um, which means that Yamaha have him to thank for still leading the Manufacturers' Championship. Uh, Andre uh-huh. Davizioso in fifth. Maverick Vinales, sixth, first of the factory Yamaha's home, ahead of Petrucci. Maverick literally only just beat Petrucci over the line, who finished seventh on the GP17. Uh, Folger eighth on the uh, old Yamaha for Tech 3. Aleish on the Aprilia ninth, and Valentino tenth. Uh, the rest of the points rounded out by Scott Renning, Hector Barbara, Loris Baz, those two of Intia boys having a last lap scrap to the flag. Uh, Barbara won it to take 12th. Bradley Smith, 14th. And Carol Abraham, the last of the point scorers in 15th. The only two finishers not to score were Sam Lowe's, who still hasn't scored this season. He is the only rider yet to score. Uh, the only regular rider, that is. Because Takuya Suda, who finished just behind him on the Suzuki in 17th, is also yet to score. But that will be his one appearance for the season. Andre, you know, the other Suzuki rider crashed out of the Grand Prix from that leading group early on. Um, championship standings then look like this. Valentino Rossi leads it by two. He has 62 points to Maverick Vinales' 60. Uh, Mark Marquez is two further back in third. Then six more back to Pedroza in fourth. Ten points covers the top four, as we mentioned earlier on. Andrea Davizioso is 21 off the lead in fifth. Zarco, 27 off the lead in sixth. And top independent, crucially. He's taken that from Cal Crutchlow at the weekend. Crutchlow is 7th on 29, level with Folger. Uh, Lorenzo is up to 9th on 28. And Danilo Petrucci completes the top 10 on 26 points. Uh, we'll have more MotoGP news a little bit later on uh, when we get to the news because uh, there was some hilarious news from the Sunday morning uh, and some more serious news from the test uh, that followed the Grand Prix. But first, we'll talk Moto2. Um, and another comfortable victory for the Estrella Galicia Mark VDS team. We've said that three times already this season. Um, but to the delight of one person in the Harrison household, and it wasn't Dre, this victory, though, went to Alex Marquez. Yes, Alex Marquez finally, after two and a bit seasons of trying, has uh, finally got his first Moto2 class win, which I wasn't sure was ever going to happen at yeah. one point. Um, again, a, a, a glorious, shall we say, first mm. victory for him and a, a near-perfect weekend. Again, fastest in every single session outside of the warm-up. And again, just a, just better than Frankie on the day. And that, that, was, that was the hope of, of Alex Marquez. The pace has always been there and it really came to roost on this one. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it, in all seriousness, um, when we're talking about the Marquez family... Um, how great was it to see the reaction of Mark in part for me? I mean, I, I haven't seen Mark Marquez that happy for many of his own wins. Yeah, 
Like, you, you could see on the cliff, he was running down the garage to get down to Park Ferme to celebrate Alex's first win. It was like watching it was like watching his uh, qualifying session yes. at Circuit of the Americas all over again, where he's running down the pit line like a madman, um, trying yeah. to get it sorted This is out. like he's an hour before he's about to start the MotoGP race. Yeah. Not even in his levers yet, and he, he is he is he is going for it. Um like a nutter. And yeah, absolutely. Work it's it's nice to see the, you know, Marquez so happy so happy for his brother like that. And that, that was really endearing to see. And <laughs> it's like, I, I love that Alex Marquez basically copied his brother's celebration as well, where he like he does he does the little start step for jumping into the into yes. his team. That was <laughs> You can tell even 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 waiting for that one. Yeah, that's the trade. That's the trademark Marcus celebration these days, isn't it? Alex has uh, he's been waiting a while to uh, to put that one into practice, but he finally got to do that at the weekend. Of course, it's his first win since 2015, uh, 2014, should I say, when he was the Moto3 uh, world champion, um, and. He went out there and took it, didn't he? I mean, it's very easy to sit here and say that, oh, he won it because his teammate fell off from the lead. Um, but if we're being serious about this, Dre, Franco Morbidelli was riding on the ragged edge just to stay with Alex. Exactly. And uh, Frankie admitted it after the race. He said he was absolutely on the limit um, trying to keep up. And as, as it turned out, yeah, like Frankie didn't have an answer for Alex Marquez. And when he tried to give one, he crashed it. And... Maybe that was a Morbidelli mistake of maybe just taking the 20 points that was in front of him, given his landslide championship lead going into the weekend. Was was going for it that hard for an extra five points really worth it? Probably not, given that Marquez mm. was not a threat going in. But yeah, like Alex Marquez pretty much forced Frankie Morbidelli into a mistake. And yeah, yeah if that, it, Mar- Marquez simply put was in complete control of that race. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I wondered that. I mean, I, I wondered whether I was being too critical by saying maybe Franco should have taken the 20 points for second place. I mean, I could understand why he didn't. I could understand why. I mean, this is a guy who's clearly at the top of his game, feels untouchable right now, um, because he pretty much has been in Moto2 this year for a couple of Delhi, undefeated so far this season, going into the Spanish Grand Prix. And he was probably on top of the world and thinking, I want to keep this run going. I want to go for four out of four. Um, as it turns out, the way the, the way things have panned out, probably one of the best move because he currently, had he taken those 20 points, he would have effectively a full race's worth of points in his pocket given how badly exactly. Thomas Luti went in that Grand Prix. Um, so I think, I guess that's where I would criticise Morbidelli slightly. If he'd just taken one look behind him and realised how far ahead of the rest of the field Mark VDS were that weekend, he might okay. well have taken yeah. the 20 points because that was really what struck me more than anything else from this weekend, Dre, because this is a glorified spec series in Moto2 and Mark VDS absolutely demoralised the opposition. They were a mile ahead. Yeah, like once again, Mark VDS, uh, like Julian Ryder once used the line in 2015 to describe them quite well. And this was when they were at their prime with Rabat and Calio, and they won 10 races that season, which no team had ever done in a Moto G- in a Moto Two season. Where Ryder said they are a Moto GP team in sheep's clothing, basically, like they have resources that no other Moto Two team seemingly has right now in terms of funding resources and of course rider ability as well because i mean fracking but will most likely be in moto gp next year mm. and heck if alex marquez keeps this up he'll probably be, be having offers on the table for him too because uh, let's be real there's probably a lot of people that want alex marquez yes. to, to be a success probably those painted in orange and black gear um <laughs> but um, like i said like they are so far ahead of everybody else right now and yeah everyone else has got work to do because mark vds has got 
a juggernaut of a team around it right now for the second time in three years. Mm, absolutely. If there's perhaps one team these days, Yamoto 2, which can match, um, might be the yes, and Australia Galicia for financial might. It might well be uh, Sky VR46, particularly given the VR46 part uh, of that team. Um, mm. and, and this is a team, Dre, that is getting to grips with Moto2 pretty quickly. Um, not least, it's rider, um, Peko Banyaya, who I don't think any of us in our heart of hearts ever thought we'd be seeing him finish second this early. No, no way. Um, he was great Stunning. in the warm-ups in Qatar, but I, I never at any point thought, you know, any point thought that he'd be challenging for podium spots this this quickly. Um, again, Peko was was clear. It was a clear, it was an easy podium no matter what happened pretty much, but he was best of the rest outside of Mark VDS and you know, got a little boost for his for his for his, maybe a bit of positive karma with uh, Frankie Morbidelli not finishing. He bumped bumped up to second place in the end and yeah, fantastic job from Peko Banyai. And this is a you know, this is a track he's always gone well around in his Moto three days as well. He was strong for Mahindra around here. And mm. uh, yeah, he's 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 carried that form with him to, to the VR forty six Academy and to get a podium on their fourth ever race in Moto two is incredibly impressive and Peko finishing second fantastic result absolutely and given the news that we brought you last week on this show that vr46 would appear to have a moto gp slot waiting for it if it wants it um probably not the best not the worst time to get a result like that in moto 2 uh for peko banyaya um to try and tell a team that you might be uh, a moto gp rider in the making and finishing second in just your fourth ever race in that class that's a result that puts him in Vinales, Rins, Marquez territory. That's the level of rider that we're talking about that finishes that high up that early in a Moto2 career. Because if you if you speak to or if you listen to many riders speak um, on the TV or if you listen to any commentators speak, they tend to say that the step from Moto3 to Moto2 is bigger than the step from Moto2 to MotoGP in terms of size of bike, weight of bike, the difference in power from bike to bike. It takes yeah. a lot of riders, a lot of riders that are in MotoGP right now, along takes John Zarco. It took him years to get to grips with Moto2, and Bagnaia's done it instantly. Yeah, exactly. Like, for Johan Zarco, it took, it was his fourth season in Moto2 when he won the championship in his 50s and when he retained it. And that wasn't the most convincing title defense from Johan Zarco because the rest of the field essentially caught up with him. Um, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um,. Some guys adapt faster than others. And if you're adapting that quickly to Moto2, you're probably going to be something a bit special if you're that good that quickly. We've seen, we saw Maverick do it winning his second ever race in the class. Alex Rins won in his first season in, Mo in Moto2 as well. And again, doubled down on that in year two. So yeah, it's, it's not uncommon. I mean, we've seen guys adapt really quickly and the guys that do tend to do very well in the top class as well. So Hey, maybe a sign of things to come for Peko and maybe the man in third as well. Absolutely, uh, who we'll talk about in a second. The, this podium fight um, had a few notable riders missing from it um, because of an incident that happened on the very second lap of the Grand Prix um, when Simone Corsi went full Simone Corsi uh, on the second lap oh, of yeah. the Grand Prix and decided that taking one rider out wasn't enough and decided he'd take two out. Uh, on the second lap of the Grand Prix, taking out uh, Tech 3's Xavi Vieje, who qualified uh, on the third row of the grid, and a rider who I'm becoming more of a fan of with every passing weekend, um, <laughs> looking superb on that bike, but he was skittled out by Corsi, um, who decided that that wasn't enough, he'd also take out Takaki Nakagami while he was at it. Um, so oh. all three
three of those riders were missing from the podium fight. Um, so through it all came three riders. Um, Miguel Oliveira, Matteo Pessini, and Luca Marini um, were the three riders that were running pretty close together towards the end of that Grand Prix. The podium spot went to Oliveira. KTM now, Dre, have had two podiums out of four races uh, at the start of the season, as has Oliveira. And with Morbidelli out of the running in this race, Oliveira has halved the gap from himself to the leader of the championship right now. And if we're talking about guys that are the real deal, Oliveira certainly comes into that conversation. Oh, God, yeah. Fantastic start to the season from Oliveira. Again, like this, again, maybe there was some truth to Kiev for not being so great because he was only a point better than Danny Camp last year. And we'll get to him in the new section, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, like Miguel has taken to this KTM really quickly. This KTM is a good bike. Um, and yeah, Miguel has done a, an exceptional job so far. Again, he's the thinking man's rider, and he's in, his intelligence is really showing on that bike. It's a brand new bike; no one's ever run it before, and that's something you've got to bear in mind as well. This is a brand new motorcycle; no one's ever run this KTM before, and Miguel has taken to it exceptionally quickly. He's the guinea pig for it, and yeah, he's doing a fantastic job. Um, can't really fault him right now. Again, with Mark VDS being the juggernaut that it is. Yeah, being you know having two podiums in the first four rounds and being third in the championship really is not a bad way to go so far. It is, given where the two men ahead of him in the championship finished, third was actually a very very good result uh, for Oliveira, as we'll mm. talk about in a little bit. Um, the two men behind him that I mentioned, the two Italians, Matteo Pasini and Luca Marini, um, both impressive performances. Pasini, if nothing else, at least getting it to the flag without crashing this time, which he hadn't managed to do in each of the first three races, because he could quite easily have been on the podium in Kota had he not fallen off. Absolutely. Um, of course, he qualified on the front row there, so he got it together this time and finished fourth. Um, but Luca Marini, who kind of falls into a similar boat as Alex Marquez, who... Um, Marini is probably another guy that the uh, the higher ups in MotoGP would really like to be quick, um, given yes. his family connections. Marini, for those who don't know, and you probably all know by now, is the younger half brother of Valentino Rossi. Um, they never mentioned that. They never mentioned that. But um, poor kid. If there was ever any pressure on a guy, then it's on Luca <laughs> Marini to be quick, um, given that he's always going to have that um, comparison thrown at him. Um, but he's starting to prove now, Dre, that he is a quick rider in his own right because. All the talk with him forward last year was about Lorenzo Baldassari, who I had as an outside tip for the championship this season. But Marini is thoroughly outclassing him now, and fifth was his career best. Absolutely. Um, gosh. I joke about it with my brother every time we talk about Moto2. We talk about Luca Marini. We go, oh, you, you, did you mention he's Valentino Rossi's soft brother? Like, did, did you realise that? And that's kind of become our running joke with him, unfortunately, yeah. because the, it's a shame because. As, as mentioned, he's a great rider in his own right. He's doing good work on on, on that team, and as you say, Baldassari has been, yeah, you know, has been has been the guy that again against he had the breakthrough year last season, and yeah, it's not really worked out for him so far in that same sense. And yeah, Luca Marini's really stepped up so far this season. That was a nice breakthrough top five for him, and maybe maybe more coming because we've shown forward racing does have the pace to get up there yeah we saw it with Baldassari we also winning and winning at Masano last year so yeah like there's potential there and if Marini's only getting quicker so yeah definitely want to we'll keep an eye on for the future absolutely and we we, we it's easy for, to forget how young and how relatively inexperienced Marini is because he was a rookie like everybody else in Moto2 last season there was it was almost the, the least heralded rookie class ever because there were actually some really good yeah. rookies there there was Oliveira Vieje Marini um, as rookies last season but they were all on fairly uncompetitive bikes or in poor teams last year so we didn't really see the best of any of them um, but Marini's really getting there because he was up there in Qatar too wasn't he, he was sick there um, and now fifth a career best in Jerez 2 
So Marini looking like he's really getting to grips with it. Emoto 2. He just beat Marcel Schrotter to fifth. Schrotter the first Sutoho um, for the Dynavolt team. Just ahead of Dominic Egeta uh, on the Kiefer Suter. That livery is still not growing on me, I'm afraid. Um, it's st it still looks a dog's dinner, I'm afraid. Um, but Egeta winning the Battle of the Swiss uh, for seventh. Ahead of Thomas Luti, um, who had a very anonymous weekend, it has to be said. And given what happened to Morbidelli who crashed out of a winning position and scored no points, Thomas Lutie is probably going to look back on this Hareth weekend as a major missed opportunity. Absolutely. Um, gosh, with, with all the other major title contenders there, Morbidelli having a big slip-up, Marquez not really being a threat to all this race, being still you know, a distant a distant second right now overall in the standings. And again, like there's no real outside third guy outside of Miguel. So yeah, Luti was missing a golden chance to really to really get up there this year because yeah, we all saw it last year. Luti yeah. was was right on the brink of, of finally breaking that duck, and it just didn't quite happen for him. And ugh, it just it just all it all just kind of went a bit ugly from there, really. Because um, everything was there, really. Looking at the gap that Alex Marquez and Mark BDS in general had behind them, everything mm -hmm. was there for a guy like Thomas Luti to finish that race second. Um, and had he finished that race in second, he would be leading the championship right now uh, because he was only 19 points behind uh, Morbidelli going into the race and 20 would have taken him to the lead of the championship by a point, even though he hasn't won a race yet. Um, and yeah, Luti, I think Luti's going to really rue this weekend uh, as the season goes on because he, he, I mean, he's only 11 points off the lead of Morbidelli, but we've seen the pace that Morbidelli has in his back pocket. You've got to take advantage of his bad weekends and the weekends where Absolutely. he doesn't score points because there are going to be a lot more weekends where he takes 25. Um, so Luti's probably going to regret this weekend the later this season goes on. Here's how the race finished then. Marquez the winner um, for the first time in Moto2 from Bagnaia and Oliveira. Um, that is a very unfamiliar Moto2 podium um, mm -hmm. in recent years. Uh, Pasini in fourth ahead of Marini. Then came Schrotter in sixth. Ega to seventh. Luti eighth. Yoni Hernandez getting his first points of the season in ninth. Um, and Axel Pons in 10th. Balazari was only 11th on the second of the forward backs ahead of Jorge Navarro, um, another rookie doing decent things at the moment. Um, that's points for three of the first four races for Navarro now. Uh, Sirin, who, uh, as we mentioned last week, won the CEV Moto2 race on his weekend off um, a week prior, uh, only finished 13th, though, in the actual Moto2 Grand Prix Championship um, last weekend. Ricky Cardus, who continues to sub for Brad Binder at KTM, finished 14th. And Tetsuta Nagashima also getting his first points of the season for the stop and go team in 15th just ahead of Fabio Quartararo now the championship looks like this Morbidelli leads it by 11 from Luti Oliveira is a further 5 back in 3rd then comes Alex Marquez who trails by 27 now um, of course he did trail by 52 heading into the weekend Banyaya is all the way up to 5th ahead of Nakagami and Marini Egeta is 8th, Baldassari 9th, and Vieje has dropped 5 places after that crash with Corsi from 5th down to 10th. Um, right, on to Moto3, and the, without question, best race of the three. Has to be honest, the other two weren't classics. Um, no. But Dre, Moto3 most certainly was. Uh, yet another Moto3 classic, ladies and gentlemen. Um, brilliant, brilliant race. Uh, almost as usual for, Mo for Moto3 there. Again, five or six guys having a realistic shot at winning that race, having mixed outcomes throughout the field. Mm. But, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. This was this was a, a fantastic Grand Prix. Again, literally coming right down to the final corner. Quality riding up and down the field, except for Darren Binder. But, yeah, um, yeah brilliant, brilliant race.
Mm, yeah, and John McPhee. Um, but we'll get yeah. to him later on. Um, yeah, it, the Grand Prix victory in the end went to Aaron Callit, and, um, and we have to talk about him before we go any further, um, because this is a guy that was probably in the depths of despair after Kota, a race that seemed harder not to win, um, given how yeah. much quicker he was than the rest of the field, and he blew it um, from the lead. Um, tells us a bit about him, that, doesn't it? Because not many riders would have bounced back from that and won the next race, um, but Aaron Callit did that for his first win. I hate, to, I hate to be all corny when I say this, but it was it was a gritty performance from Aaron Canet there. Again, as you say, the the, the confidence could, he could easily make the argument that it it would have waned. It must have um, took a pounding after Kota. Yeah, exactly. He could he could have very easily have gone away after Kota. That was a race that he seemed destined to win going through Saturday. That he was so much faster in clear air than everybody else. It was, it was Danny Kentesk going into that weekend. Um, but yeah, as you say, to bounce back like that and then come through and take a, a, what was a hard-fought pack racing win with a absolutely wonderful final corner double pass down the inside yes. hairpin uh, that pass alone was worthy of any grand prix win that was a astonishing astonishing pass yeah a- I, I was watching that thinking there is no way he's getting this stopped no way that's getting through the corner and he somehow did it because we so often see this i mean that corner as dre knows better than anyone uh, lends itself to a last corner dive bomb um but it's very rare that we see a last corner dive bomb work at that corner without either a collision or an entry to the gravel trap um and i've got to say dre i think that's the first one i've seen actually work cleanly from a can it yeah, like he's had a habit of throwing throwing the, uh, the the kitchen sink at those sort of passes and not getting it right. We saw Fabio Quattararo try it a couple of years ago yes. very similarly, and they went spectacularly wrong. I think Alex Rins that same weekend tried and failed at, at the infamous last corner dive on at Lorenzo Corner. But as you say, Aaron Cannett absolutely nailed it. But mm. it's, it's amazing that he was able to break that much later than Fanati and Mir in front of him and then still be able to, to take the apex of the corner cleanly and still hold it all the way to the line. Didn't really compromise himself out there either. Just just some astonishing bit of riding from Aaron Kane. Like, where was this guy? Yeah. I mean, this more often, please. Exactly. I mean, he's he, he's so often been talked about, hasn't he, as the absolutely rapid guy that just can't stop crashing, um, which... Uh, the the Cota race kind of lends itself to that and that analysis of Canet, unfortunately. But yeah. yeah, this is the guy that um, this is why so many people rate Canet so highly because he's got this in him. Um, he's clearly yeah. he's clearly quick. He's clearly very very good at this. I mean, this is the guy that probably would have beaten Bulldogger to the Junior World Championship had he not crashed oh. and broke his ankle two rounds from the end. Um, so yeah, this is a guy who's got it all. Um, and what a move at the final corner. It's right up there with, I mean, two of the best overtakes I've ever seen in a motorcycle race took place at that corner. Canitz is one of them, and Eugene Laverty did one in a World Superbike race in 2013. The, the, oh, the, God, yeah. The race, the very same race where Tom Sykes won his world title, um, Eugene Laverty went around the outside of Marco Melandri into that corner and made it stick. I still um, have no idea how he did that, by the way. No, <laughs> that is that is up there with one of the very best overtakes I've ever seen in a, in a motorcycle race. Um, and for Canitz to go from third to first at the last corner um definitely goes in that conversation um especially when you consider the two guys he beat um romano fadati and joan mia who looked like they were going to dispute the victory at the final corner both getting relegated to second and third and the lower steps uh, on the podium um which is kind of a, a familiar story for fanati to be leading a race for a lot of it and then get beaten just at the end um but he did beat joan mia the championship leader to second and is actually it has to be said whisper it quietly looking like he might put a championship run together this time. 
Really? You sure on this, Sonny? <laughs> do, do, do you want to say that? Do you, do you want to put your name on this? <laughs> when I say a championship run, I don't mean he's going to win the thing, but he's like, he might he might actually challenge for it this time. You sure? <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I am that Holly going to stay up. <laughs> so in other words, not very. No. <laughs> but, he, but but as I say, he's, he is looking a lot a lot calmer, would you say, at the moment in Moto2 3? I mean, I know he had that, that collision with Darren Binder, but I wouldn't necessarily say that was a Fanati problem. That was more Brad, That was more Darren Binder putting himself on a part of the racetrack that you shouldn't put yourself, um, yeah, to be honest. Exactly. But, like, he, like, but he is looking. He is looking genuinely good, Fanati, in a in a team that seems happy with him, um, which Sky of the L46 didn't really seem to be towards you, you the end say of that. This now. <laughs> yeah, I, I do understand that this could quite easily change at the flip of a coin for Fanati. But so, 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 I mean, how hard are you getting your cape out for Romano Fanati right now? You really want this guy to win the title, don't you? No, no, I, I didn't even predict this guy would win it. I went for Bulliger. Um, so, um, yeah, if you want to talk about the guy that I called to win this championship, then, um, yeah, that conversation is going to go even worse, I'm afraid. Traitor. <laughs> um, oh, but, uh, but, yeah, let's, let's take Fanati's performances as we see them so far. He's going quite well, has to be said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll take it for what it is. Yeah. Like this, like he's been strong so far, and then again, this is usual with Fanati. He finds a way to blow it for himself more often than not, and that's part of the problem. It is. Uh, he finished second by three hundredths of a second at the end, behind uh, Aaron Canet. Um, Joan Mia finishing third, completing the podium just behind Fanati. Um, and third ain't a bad result. It has to be said for Joan Mia. But is it just me that is a little bit relieved after he won those first two races reasonably comfortably that it looks like we might have a championship on? Just a little bit. Yeah. Like you say, though, Mir isn't making mistakes. Like, did like this was a solid result for Joanne Mir, all, all things considered. You're not going to win every race in Moto3. That's impossible. So he was in the leading pack. He had a chance at the win. He tried it. Didn't quite come together for him. But a podium finish is is hardly a bad thing. And, again, the only person that took points out of him was Canet. And Canet isn't a threat right now. So... Mir will gladly take the second place. Yeah, well, the third place. Fanati beat him to second. Sorry, so Fanati, right, yeah, so Fanati team took, took points off him uh, as well. Um, the race was actually lit up, and, and we talked about how much of a classic this was. Um, and those three most certainly played their part, Kenneth, Fanati, and Mir. But the race was lit up by the perhaps skintest of skint teams, um, the team that was seen populating the back of the field last season with those god-awful green wheels on the Mahindra, um, the Platinum Bay Real Estate team. If you're wondering what those two white bikes were doing at the front of the field, we were asking the very, very same question because Marcos Ramirez and Darren Binder lit up this Moto3 race today. No kidding. The Darren Binder right up there. Like, the Platinum Bay team is the kind of team you pick when you start a Moto3 career on the video games, yes. which kind of says it all, really. Um, but yes, Binder was fantastic right until the moment he tried a little bit too hard and took himself out. Probably had the nosebleed from running that high. Um, but on, on the second side of it, Marcos Ramirez, out of nowhere with an absolutely fantastic performance. Looked like he'd been here three years already, and he's still only 19 years old, the kid. Brilliant stuff. And, and again, a real like, one of the biggest surprises of the season so far, I'd argue, in any class. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Ramirez, Ramirez has pedigree in that last season he was the runner-up in the Junior World Championship um, to Lorenzo Della Porta, who has found, um, like the Platinum Bay team, how awful the Mendes are right now. Because um, yeah. Dallaporta is still to score a point in, in Grand Prix this season, the junior world champion. Um, Ramirez was the runner-up to him last season, blew it at the final round of the season when he crashed in the final race of the year. Um, Ramirez lost the championship. Um, but, 
we've never seen this level of performance from him in a Grand Prix before. Um, it was quite incredible. And what really struck me about this race, Dre, is that Ramirez seemed to have a completely different breaking point to just about everybody else in that race. Yeah, it was all over the place. Like, whatever everyone's normal line was, he was five meters later, yeah. which is gnarly for what a Moto3 race is. But, uh, yeah, unbelievable stuff from Ramirez there. And again, very, very definitely unafraid to... Um, you know, to try something different. And that also often when it comes down to Murder Free, that creativity. Bravery. As well as, as, well as uh, overall speed. And Ramirez certainly made it work for him. Yeah, and it's the best result we've seen so far this season for a KTM, which is incredible. Um, that we, We've still not seen anything other than a Honda finishing in the podium spots um, so far this season. So Ramirez in fourth. That's the best result that KTM have seen so far this season for perhaps one of the most unlikely riders to, that was going to take it um, in Ramirez. He was fourth. Uh, Jorge Martin was nowhere near the fight for the win in the end. Um, a guy who we've really sung the praises of this season, Dre, Jorge Martin, former Red Bull rookies champ, um, took the pole position with relative ease on Saturday and then quietly faded as the race went on. That was peculiar because, again, because Martin has been... Really, really good so far. He's been, he's probably been like other than me, the most consistent man in the field so far this season. Yeah. And despite that, didn't really come to the table on this one. It was it was weird again on home soil as well. Very bizarre that Martin, a, a track he's very experienced on, he just wasn't there for him this time round. Yeah, because I was watching that race, and I because I, I I was watching this race on a delay because I had work, so I'd managed to dodge the results of the races, which is sometimes rather tricky because usually the MotoGP race, the the commentators have a great knack of spoiling the early results in it, uh-huh. um, which they managed not to do this time um, to my eternal thanks. Um, but I was watching this race and thinking. Martin is just biding his time here. He, every time I look, he's just sitting at the back of that leading group and he looks like he's just biding his time. Wait for it. Just wait for the moment when Martin decides to go. It's going to come any moment now. Like, any moment, guys. Oh, maybe not. <laughs> he finishes down He finishes down in ninth at the end of the Grand Prix. 1.9 off the win, which was about all he had uh, in the Grand Prix, unfortunately, um, for Jorge Martin. Um, but that's better than can be said for Britain's John McPhee, unfortunately, for the British talent team, um, who had the mother of all dumpster fires of a weekend in Hareth, which um started in qualifying yeah yeah gosh just just not a good weekend it's also to be like for those that don't know trying filling in the, to the listeners what has actually happened <laughs> yes the the race that fit the race how it finished can it the winner from fanati and mia uh, that was your podium uh, ramirez in fourth um this is a top four covered by a third of a second fabio di gian antonio in fifth uh, Andrea Migno, 6th for Sky VL46. Then came Bulliger in 7th. Bastianini, 8th for Estrada Galicia. Jorge Martin in 9th. And Juanfran Guevara in 10th. That was the leading group, essentially, because it was a 5-second gap to Ben Schneider in 11th. Uh, and to be honest, Ray, McPhee's problem, it, obviously the root of it all, was the qualifying position, how low he started on the grid. I think he qualified 26th. Um, for this race um, and um, McPhee found to his cost that if you can't get away with that leading group in the early stages you're not catching them back up again no it's, it's practically impossible like it's it's so hard to be fast in clear area mode three it's pack racing to the bone and and the, the, the front four had just just had that much more pace than everybody else did and McPhee probably trying too hard to, to, to make up the ground he'd lost with such a poor qualifying performance well, you know what happened next. Yeah, down he went at turn one, and um, and that was that. Down from 
what probably would have been 11th place had he had he made it to the flag because he, he probably had the legs on the rest of the guys in that group as we saw we kept seeing him at the front of that chase group in the background on the white British talent team bike and we were waiting to see if McPhee could tow himself up to that second that leading group jump across that gap and he just couldn't do it um yeah like as, as I say once you lose that toe once that first group makes a break like I say there's so much like cycling races um these yeah. motor three races and once once someone makes a breakaway it's very very difficult to jump across the gap and McPhee couldn't do it um and given that we're probably talking McPhee in terms of a title contender this season he might well have, as I say, kind of like Valentino MotoGP, he might well have needed those five points for 11th. Just get the points on the board. Um, yeah, so um, just don't crash it, which unfortunately what McPhee did um, because he's lost a lot of ground in the championship. As I will tell you now, Mir leads it on 74 points. Uh, his lead is down to nine points now over Fanati in second. Uh, Martinez dropped back to third. Um, he trails by 15. Uh, McPhee is now a full 25 off the lead in fourth. Uh, Canet is fifth. He is 31 back. Dijan Antonio sixth. Mino seventh. Ramirez has dropped all the way up to eighth uh, on 23 wow. points ahead of Guevara and Bulliger. My tip for the title: 52 points off the lead in tenth, um, which well, is which is which is startling. I mean, Nicola Bulliger. I don't think that was really a putting my neck on the line kind of call that to, to go for Bulliger as the championship not really. challenger. He, he was the bookies' favourite going into the season, and, or not. and I mean, where, where's this coming from? Is this purely a KTM problem? Um, because we have to we have to be honest, no KTM has really looked competitive until Ramirez. Yeah, that's weird. Cause that, that Ramirez was the best a KTM has finished this season in fourth place. Um, I don't know. Like, I don't know whether it's a KTM problem, whether it's a VR46 problem, because they've been all over the place this season as well. Their resources are a bit more stretched now because they've got a Moto2 team to deal with. I don't know. To the be honest, IO so. team has sank without trace. Yeah, the IO team are nowhere this season. It's like again, it's, it's the satellites that have been better this season. Where well, that's concerned, and yeah, I, I don't know. To be honest, to be honest with you, mate, and and we'll it's, we'll see what Danny Kent does when he when he yes. he's testing for him this week, and he'll be he'll be riding for him at, um, on a wild card basis at Le Mans. So we'll see a little bit more. If a reigning champion can't get anything out of that out of that bike, then well, who knows. Yeah, I think yeah. I think that, but I think that tells us that the team are genuinely in trouble, or that, that KTM as a whole are in trouble if they're having to draft in um, an ex-champion. Um, and obviously, if if Danny Kent hadn't been able to, well, if had if he hadn't walked out on his team essentially before this round, what would KTM have done? Because it's not they've they've kind of looked into the situation that Danny Kent's available and they've been able to draft him in. But the very fact that they've felt the need to wildcard a rider um at a french grand prix which is not a round that you'd expect kdm to want to wildcard somebody you'd think they might do that in austria their home round later in the year um that's it's round five suddenly yeah it's round it's five and they, they've they felt the need to draft in an extra bike as a wildcard to test some things out um so that 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 is that has all the hallmarks of a team and a manufacturer that are in a bit of trouble here um and it looks like that honda upgrade that was brought just before the start of the season has really hit ktm for six unfortunately and they, they are lagging behind uh the hondas at the moment um hondas as far as the championship is concerned it's honda one two three four five six um, and then Mino is the first of the KTMs in seventh Gee. place uh, in the World Championship. Uh, four rounds in. Next round is next weekend at Le Mans, where, as we mentioned, we will see Danny Kent.
Uh, now on to the news, and we'll start with Red Bull Rookies news. This is a field that is guaranteed to see a KTM victory, um, hey. because they're all KTMs. <laughs> um, uh, but the first victory went to Rory Skinner of Great Britain um, and Scotland, um, as we'll soon be saying once um, Britain breaks up. Um, because, uh, yeah, Rory Skinner taking his first victory in the class, which is a uh, cause for celebration for him, um, unless you jump at fee, because his place might be under threat from him soon. Um, Skinner taking the victory in the opening race of the season ahead of the Japanese Ai Ogura um, in second place. Third going to Kazuki Masaki, another Japanese. So two of the three podium spots taken by a Japanese. Of course, the reigning champion of the Red Bull Rookies is a Japanese as well, Ayumu Sasaki. Um, so there seems to be a real new wave of riders from uh, from over there who are really coming on strong uh, thanks to the Asia Talent Cup, if nothing else. Um, second race, though, went to the Spaniard LH VU. Uh, Skinner's joy was short-lived because he uh, led the championship for all of 24 hours, sadly, um, because he had a collision with the American Sean Kelly in race two, which has earned him a grid penalty um, for the next round of the championship, um, which takes place at Assen uh, in a few weeks' time. Um, yeah, Skinner deemed to be a little over-aggressive in the early stages of that second race, um, and he wiped out the American Kelly. Um, so that second race, as I mentioned, going to LH VU ahead Philip Salak, uh, the Czech rider in second place. And third, going to Chan Onsu of Turkey. He is one of the two Turkish brothers, Chan and Deniz Onsu. Um, Deniz Onsu leads the Asia Talent Cup at the moment. Um, and those two brothers pretty much dominated the uh, tie round of that that supported the World Superbikes a month or so back. Um, so they're both looking good. Two more protégés of Kinnan Safoglu, whose uh, influence seems to be quite strong over there. He's bringing on a lot of young riders with him uh, into motorcycle racing in the future. Um, onto uh, Chan Onsu taking third place in that second race, ahead of Agora, second from the first race, took fourth in the second, and then Masaki in fifth position. Another Japanese, uh, Ryusu Yamanaka, who is currently second in the Asia Talent Cup, taking sixth in race two. The upshot of all of that means that Viu leads the championship after his fifth in race one. He has 36 points. That's a lead of three over Agura and Salak. Masaki in fourth. Rory Skinner with a win and a DNF is fifth. Uh, and then the Italian Omar Bononi in sixth. Chan to seventh. Matthias Megol, the German, in seventh. Uh, in eighth, should I say. Makon Kawakami. Sounds Japanese, but his official nationality is Brazilian. Don't ask me why. Uh, he's ninth. Uh, and Ryusi Yamanaka is tenth in the points uh, at the moment. Next round, as I say, of the Rebel Rookies is in a few weeks' time at Assen. They follow most of the European rounds, but not all of them. Um, they won't be at Le Mans next weekend. Um, on to MotoGP news then. And uh, MotoGP stayed on. Um, after the Spanish Grand Prix for a test on the Monday. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, Andre, this test was very important for Yamaha, if nothing else. Um, and it kind of seems as if they got some of the answers that they were looking for from the race day. Yeah, and it seems that way. I mean, Maverick was so much faster, supposedly. His race pace was was into the 39s. And was, yeah, his quality pace was in the 39s. His race pace was in the 40s again. And he was not re- he was not able to run like that. Um, in in the race the previous day, so um, yeah, like very very bizarre to see that uh, all of a sudden he's running faster. And apparently, Vinales didn't even like the tire, no. which really, which is even funnier, really. That, uh, but yet, despite that, he still was still able to run much faster than he was able to a day prior. So, uh, 
bizarre, but maybe some questions answered for, for Yamaha. Yeah, the new ultra hard tire that was brought to the uh, the test. Of course, we were we were initially going to see on Friday in Argentina, um, but we never saw it because it got stuck in transit on the way to to the circuit. Um, we, it was then put back until this test, the Jerez post-race test. Valentino Rossi, more than anyone else, was looking at this tyre as the sort of silver bullet that was going to transform his season. Um, he said he preferred it, but it wasn't the transformation that he was hoping for um, from the first few rounds. So, um, yeah, the quick fix doesn't appear to be um, in line for Valentino, unfortunately. Um, looking ahead to Le Mans, so he's going to have to work at that um, next weekend. Vinales topped that test by two thousandths of a second from Marquez. Um, Pedroza in third. Alicia Spargo was fourth quickest on the Aprilia remarkably, uh, ahead of Davizioso and Lorenzo on the Ducatis. Um, Valentino Rossi was down in uh, 21st at this test as he was busy trying to test this uh, new tyre out. Um, but we also saw the first outing for Sylvain Gintoli on the Suzuki, and we'll see him again next weekend. Still with Ginters! Um, yeah, absolutely. Great to see him out there, and he openly admitted this is going to be a, a, a strong learning curve, and it's going to be a a, a hard a hard uh, grafting uh, testing and weekend at Le Mans at home, but uh, it, it was great to see him back in MotoGP for the first time in years. And I did, I did love the old shout out that Loris Baz gave him on the news of his return, yes. calling him a fast granddad, which I kind of <laughs> really um, in vintage Loris Baz fashion there, <laughs> or anything else. Um, yeah, check, 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 check the mag for a, for a protest in in the mail, Baz, from me. Um, <laughs> Oh, it's, uh, so it's just both of us who've got an axe to grind with Loris Baz now, is it? Good to see. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so um, yeah, French Grand Prix is never usually a race that needs a, a boost in atmosphere, um, if nothing else. It's always a great atmosphere at Le Mans. Um, but next weekend, with uh, with Zarco in the form he's in and Gintoli back um, for MotoGP, it's going to be a fantastic atmosphere for Moto Grand Prix uh, in a week's time. Um, more MotoGP news to come out of Jerez. Um, try and spot the irony in this one. Um, the safety car had a crash um, at the uh, at the Spanish Grand Prix on the Sunday morning following warm-up. Franco and Cini took the safety car out for a sighting lap and didn't make it beyond turn five, unfortunately, before he dropped it into the hedge. Um, now, the picture of this is hilarious. It's a rather sad-looking safety car, a rather sad-looking BMW M5, uh, with scuffs all down the left-hand side of it and some significant damage to the front bumper, buried in a tyre wall, um, and, and a gravel trap at turn five of Jerez. Um, and this is apparently, Dre, something that MotoGP is going to have to get on top of, because there was a high-speed spill shall we say for the safety car at Silverstone last year when it was on its sighting lap and it appears that Franco Uncini former Grand Prix uh, world champion in his own right is getting a little bit over exuberant with this and he's been uh, punished with some broken ribs and his passenger with a broken arm <laughs> how do you crash a safety car yeah. like like it's it's the oxymoron here is hilarious like how do you even do something like this let alone something so crazy that, like like this this was seemingly a big accident like, this was no like minor scuff he's he's properly shanked it yeah. um in tire wall this and again he's, he's cracked some ribs and he's broken his passenger's arm as well i mean like is he trying to show off for the fans out there like nobody cares how fast the safety car does exciting that my friend yeah, like it, relax it's just <laughs> it's just hit me as well you know what this this image that's in mcn and if you just google safety car crash motor gp you'll probably find this image do you remember that two-door, cheap two-door coupe challenge that we had in MotoGP in, in Top Gear all those years back? And Richard Hammond yes. with that sort of painted um, sort of paint job that he put on his car and the fridge freezer on the bottom of it. That's what that looks like. 
Um, that because he, of course, he had a BM, didn't he? Um, that's yeah. that's what that car looks like. It's just occurred to me now. That's what that car looks like in the gravel trap <laughs> on the outside of Turn Five at Jerez. Um, it looks like Hamlin's brought his old car around for a, for a spin around. Unfortunately, that's the safety car that Franco and Chini's just finished with. Um, oh. So uh, yeah, um, the safety car not quite living up to its name in Jerez uh, last weekend. So uh, hopefully, uh, Franco and Chini, the FIM safety officer, let's just not forget, um, <laughs> behaves himself a little better at Le Mans um, next weekend. Um, the irony is uh it's brilliant uh another person we'll see at Lamont next weekend is taron mckenzie um, now this is news that broke today as we record this and uh news that kind of took us all a little bit aback dre um because we know yeah. the danny kent situation which we'll touch on again in a second um walking out of the Kiefer team uh following the grand prix of the americas or during the weekend uh of that race um now they they brought in the italian federico Fellini as a one-off replacement for the spanish grand prix and he finished solidly last um yeah. and they've now brought in the unbeaten most uh, British Supersport Championship leader Taron McKenzie. I mean, seems like a hell of a step up, but what an opportunity for the kid. Yeah, this is like probably two, maybe three steps up for Taron McKenzie from where he is right now. Yeah. But this this is a once in a lifetime chance right here. Um, why why wouldn't you take this? Why, why wouldn't you grab this with both with, with both arms? Because this this is this is massive. Like this is a huge opportunity for him. Yeah, it's a, it's another six hundred cc bike, and you know it's 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 going to be more a matter of a of, of a competition um, increase more than anything else. So he is familiar with these bikes and how they are. Um, they are similar in that sense, but uh, oh. Man, we're going to have to wait and see how how he settles in. It's going to be. I'm going to be very curious to see how this goes because Taron is a is a lightning talent. Yeah, it's going to it's going to tell us a lot, not only about Taron, but also about the British sort of system that we've got at the moment because yes, Tara yes. McKenzie currently leads the British Supersport Championship by a country mile he's won all six races so far this year um, so yeah he's as you can imagine he's leading the championship by a long way first of all it opens that championship up because now from second backwards they're now effectively fighting for that championship now um, with, with McKenzie because that's well, that's the great thing about this this isn't just a one-off this is for the rest of the season that McKenzie's got this ride um, at Kiefer um, but for, for a number of years now, Tara McKenzie has been racing in that kind of class against guys like James Rispoli, Glenn Irwin, um, you know, just really a few more of them, Luke Stapleford, Kyle Ride, um, guys that are in World Super Sport right now. If Tara McKenzie can t- jump on this Kiefer bike and be anywhere resembling competitive with no testing or anything, it tells us a lot about the level of British Super Sport, doesn't it? Absolutely. Again, as you mentioned, these are some quality riders that have got on to better things in their careers already, even even from a younger standpoint since then. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, I can't argue with that in the slightest. Absolutely. Uh, now, now, Tara McKenzie, of course, replaces Danny Kent uh, at the at the keeper team. Kent, of course, quit the team. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, during the Grand Prix of the Americas weekend. Um, now, we touched on this earlier this week on, on Motorsport 101 and Keeping It 101 with Danny Cape because he, uh, he spoke out for the first time on BT Sport uh, on Sunday following comments made by his ex-team boss, Stefan Kiefer, on the Friday. Um, now, Danny Ken, I think, has tried to clear the air a little bit and try and put some, in his view, myths to rest. Um with with his comments, in his view, myths to rest um, on the Sunday, huh? but it has to be said, Dre. I don't think Danny Kent has done himself any favors with this. Uh, it's I I, I I I'm trying to be kind here. I'm going to try and be nice about this. I watched not only Kiefer's interview um, with with um, Danny um, with, with Gavin Emmett and um, 
and Hodgson, but I also listened to Susie Perry's interview with um, with Danny Kent. And Stefan, you know, was seemingly candid and rather honest about it. I thought he spoke very well. I think he spoke very well for himself there. And he said, listen, you know, we know Danny's a tremendous talent, but it takes more than that to be a success in Moto2. And I think he's right on that. I mean, we've seen many a quality rider get swept up under the system. Um, we, we, could, we could go on, Sandra well, Cortese. Well, take, you know. take Stefan Kiefer's last world champion, uh, Stefan Braddle, who won the Moto2 title with Stefan Kiefer in 2011. Um, now, without trying to sound stereotypical of a German here, he is the model of professionalism, isn't he? Absolutely. And yeah, Stefan Braddle's never said a word out of turn. I've, I've never had a word, to, to, a bad word to say against, against Stefan Braddle as a person. And I think Stefan Kiefer as you know you think he gave a pretty good account of himself in the situation that i mean like what are you meant to say when a rider quits on your team three races in like wh- like what can you really say that that would that would you know sound convincing and whatnot it's 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 like stefan's in a hard situation here people forget that like you're t- you're a team boss has got to explain why one of your riders has quit three riders three races into a season it's not a good look at all and i think stefan carried himself pretty well danny ken basically danced around the answer at least in my opinion no, he, he, did. He, he, he used tire pressures as an example which as james tozen pointed out five minutes later like you can use your thumb to work that out like that's not really an issue it, it, it's, a, it's a it's a two minute quick fix um so again tozen pretty much just said well look this isn't really a viable excuse and then, you know, I'll, 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 I'll touch back on that debate that, that, that Tozen and Hodson had on it in a minute. But as said, in any case, it's ugh, like Kent danced around the question. He didn't really give a straight answer, at least in my opinion, he didn't give a particularly straight answer about it. And he basically blamed the team and he said, oh, I'm, oh I, don't, I disagree. I was more professional. I didn't throw my team under the bus when the issues happened. No, I'm just going to talk about it now after I've quit the team mm. after three races. That's me being professional, apparently. So no, I don't, I don't, I don't buy what he was saying at all. I think that was nonsense. Mm, yeah, yeah, I agree. And he's he's making himself now. I know he's got a he's got a gig with KTM at the moment with with Aki Io, and he's just wild card outing in Moto Three. Um, but with every with every interview he gives, he makes himself damaged goods to me. Uh, in Moto2, if he wasn't already, which I think he most certainly was. Um, because if you're a Moto2 team now, um, and we can't put words in their mouths, but let's say we're currently running a Moto2 team, Dre, uh, at the moment in this class, and we see a rider who's just left another team coming out and giving an interview like that, I don't think we're going to employ that guy, are we? Because we're worried that this guy is going to wear our dental ordering in public. And he thinks he knows better than a crew chief does. Yeah. And um, like, We've mentioned this before. Like, was the crew chief a pro- was was Peter Bond a, pro- a problem when he when he became the first British Grand Prix champion in thirty five years? No, like, yeah, well, had- that that's the point. There's a lot to be said for the phrase "we win together and lose together." There's a reason that um, we hear that phrase a lot. Um, and I think when you're a rider, you cannot blame the team when it goes badly and then take the credit when it goes well. Um, exactly, it's that's it's how it works. Yeah, you can't you can't have it both ways. If Danny Kent, you know, Danny Kent did not win that Moto Three Championship on his own. He won it. Because he was in the right team, he had the right environment around him. Danny Kent did a lot. He, he did all the work out on track. We, he deserves unlimited credit for that. He went out there and won that world championship. Um, but he was given just. the he, he was given the environment. Just he was given the environment to do so by the Leopard team um, and by Stephen Kiefer and by Pete Bomb. Um, now 
he clearly doesn't think he had that environment any longer um, in, in Moto2. Um, but as Susie Perry quite rightly put to him, Dominic Agata was taking the very, very same bike to top six results at the same time. Exactly. And that's, that just says it always. And like, Agata is another guy that you, we've never heard a bad word said about. No. And again, another guy that's turned down MotoGP, perform, MotoGP seats in the past and is a guy that was once a top five rider in the class. So the question I ask is, at what point, Danny, is it, is it is it your fault? At what point does it stop becoming about the team and stops being about you? Like, like that's what I would ask him. Is like, well, listen, mate, you weren't like you weren't asking for a new crew chief when you won the Moto Three title as conservatively as you did in the end, because he, he admitted himself he got spooked towards the end of that title because Miguel was reading him in all that hard, and now he's quit Moto Two on two separate occasions. Now um, he left Tech Three after a single year to go back down. And now he's quit again because he didn't like the bike. The same bike that Dominique Agata took to the top five. So it's clearly not the bike then, is it? No. Because Dominique Agata is eighth in the championship right now in Moto2. Agata's up there. Like, he's not. He's having a, an underrated, pretty solid season, given he's on a suitor, which is not the ideal chassis to be on right now, given that Calix has been the dominant supplier since Marquez left him in 2013. Mm, and, like so, I, and like I say, Danny Kent's interview, he was, I think he was trying to sort of preserve and repair his reputation with that but i don't see i don't see how he can do that now if anything he's just made itself made himself worse and what what can he do now let's say this test and this wildcard outing goes well let's say he wins at the long next weekend on the ktm which he might do um sure. let's say he gets a regular ride next season in moto 3 with ktm and wins the championship again that's still not going to earn him a moto 2 ride because Let's say he wins another Moto3 title. Every Moto team is just going to turn around and say, yeah, you did that already. And look what happened. Yeah, you're damaged goods at this yeah, point. You already won a Moto3 title and it didn't work in Moto2. Like, you're just not that good a Moto2 rider at this point. Like, is that fair to say? I mean, he, like uh, the, yeah. the, bo- the body of evidence. There I, think, I, think, I think it all comes back to Stefan Kiefer's comment, doesn't it? It takes more than talent to be good in Moto2. Absolutely, and Kent's not even had a top five finish in his Moto2 career yet. He's done two seasons in there, two different stints, two different teams, and on neither occasion has it been able to work, especially given that Danny Kent at the start of the season was talking in praise of how much he actually liked that supposed to to chassis because of the rear-end grip that it has that the Calyx doesn't have. So Kent has, has talked all this talk, and he's got very little to show for it except now burnt bridges with a, with, with, a, with a team that, you know, did do a solid job right now with Agatha, at least. They've seen they've definitely gotten better compared to last year. And all of a sudden, you're, you're unemployed at the moment. I'm sure you're riding for KTM now, but who's taking you on? Who's yeah. tearing up a contract for you? Yeah, exactly. That The only way now Danny Kent can re- re- restore his reputation in Moto2 is by jumping on a Moto2 bike and doing well on it. But there's a big hurdle there. Who's going to put him on one of their bikes? Um, I, I just can't see that happening. Um, and Danny Kent, oh, be- yeah, Danny Kent better hope that Tara McKenzie bombs at Kiefer because if Tara McKenzie jumps on that bike and does well, then it looks even worse for Danny Kent. Unfortunately, exactly. um, in future weeks, if if a rookie if out of British Supersport jumps on that bike and starts doing well on it, um, it clearly wasn't the bike. It clearly wasn't the crew. It clearly wasn't the team. It was clearly the rider sat on the bike. Sadly, um, so so we will follow that situation with interest. Danny Kent, as I mentioned, will be at the French Grand Prix next weekend, and he will be racing in Moto Three uh, on a third Red Bull KTM IO bike. Um, so we'll see how he gets on 
there. Um, this weekend, though, um, sees the return of the World Superbike Championships, the Johnny Ray Show um, at Imola this weekend. Um, now, Jonathan Ray has doubled up at Imola before. Um, he's done so on a Kawasaki and he's done so on a Honda uh, in the past. Um, but last season saw domination from Chas Davies at this particular circuit on the Ducati. He won both races by an absolute fortnight um, ahead of the two Kawasaki's who couldn't touch him. Um, it's 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 so far gone now to talk about Chas Davies in championship terms because he's so far behind. But Chas, if nothing else, I want to do some winning again. And this seems like as good an opportunity as any for him. Yeah, again, completely dominated at Tata Emma last year. Took two very easy double victories while the Kawasaki's were playing hot potato with each other. Mm. Um, but if the form book said anything this season, does Ducati have a dominant track anymore? Mm. Because we saw it at Aragon where we thought Chas was going to cakewalk it. They ended up splitting the victories and Ray was competitive in both races. Um, and it, that could very well be the case again, because I remember Jonathan Ray did a double here in 2015. So, yeah. like, Ray's got experience of winning an Imola before, and this is a track he likes as well. And, you know, if, like, I don't know if that Ducati is good enough now at this point where it can win here so easily second time round, because Kawasaki looks like they've got the complete package around them. Mm, yeah, it's also going to be interesting this weekend to see what kind of physical state Tom Sykes is in because we have the official Tom Sykes round of the championship in just two weeks' time at uh, Donington Park. Um, so he'll want to be fit by then because that's probably the, the weekend that he's going to do a bit of winning this year um, because it doesn't look like he's going to do much of it anywhere else at the moment uh, with Jonathan Ray uh, in such form. Um, World Superbikes also supported by World Super Sport. Uh, will we get our fifth different winner in five races um, this weekend? We shall see. Um, and the World Super Sport 300 class. Can it get, go even close to matching the drama of Assen? Probably not. Um, but we'll have fun. We'll have fun finding out um, this weekend. Um, that is all to come. Um, if nothing else, Dre, I think the nostalgist amongst the two of us um, is looking forward to this week because I think we both have a soft spot for Imola. Oh, I love Imola. I always have. I always will. For my Formula One days, where it was my favorite track to play on the video games. It was. It was a track that you, it's. It's such a fast race track as well. It's. It's never a dull moment. You're always going ridiculously fast and. If, in, in bike in, in bike terms it's still a, a fantastic circuit you know it's it, we don't see very much use for it now because it's kind of faded away the facilities aren't as great it's kind of fallen behind some other more modern day circuits now but Imola is still a beautiful place it's a beautiful place in the forest to watch to watch bikes or cars race around and uh yeah really looking forward to this one yeah don't know about you but it's one of those circuits that I have on the list of just venues of sporting venues I really want to visit at one stage before I die it's just it's just yes. one of those venues that just i mean it's it has so much history behind it now i appreciate a lot of that isn't very very pleasant history uh given what happened in 1994 in formula one um but just just walking into that place with just the character that place has and visiting the Ayrton center statue it's it's just a venue that i think just all motorsport fans just have to visit uh, at some stage um and we're looking to seeing world super looking forward to seeing world superbikes race around there this Absolutely. weekend um no bsb this weekend uh, they have a weekend off they're back shortly after that motor gp as i mentioned is back at le mans 
next weekend. The upshot of all that means that you do get all classes. Uh, if you're watching the UK on Eurosport this weekend, you get all classes live. The uh, World Superbikes, World Supersport, Supersport 300 and Stock 1000 all live over the course of the yeah. weekend. So um, keep an eye on Eurosport for that. We'll be back this time next week to review all of that um, as we talk about Jonathan Ray's 7th and 8th victories of the season. Um, join us next week for that. Um, and uh, between now and then, Motorsport 101 returns with episode 86 um next week and dre you'll actually have something to talk about this time well it, well it, it is the spanish grand prix though so you never know uh, like, as i said like you like you say this now but it's like <laughs> it's the spanish grand prix which has a her- hilarious tendency of shit in the bed mm. um I, I i really hope we actually get a decent grand prix this time around then again and the monte carlo e prix yeah oh god uh, <laughs> Monaco wasn't particularly good for Formula E last, like last time they went around there either, but hopefully we'll have some stuff to talk about by the time that rolls around. I can't promise you anything here, fellas. We've had a bad run of form for actual <laughs> shit we're talking about on Motorsport 101 the last fortnight or so, but we will us. try. Me, obviously me, Ryan King, and probably RJ O'Connell back with you on that one uh, next weekend, so hopefully we'll have a quality show. And like, On behalf of race fans everywhere, Lewis Hamilton, could you give Valtteri Bottas the wheel bump, please? Give mm. us something to talk about, for Christ's sake. Yeah, well, didn't we not see on, on social media this week, I, sure, I saw a show that's shared on social media of uh, Formula One sharing the video of last season's Mercedes collision on lap one and Valtteri Bottas liked it on Instagram. I'm sure, <laughs> sure Valtteri Bottas liked it on Instagram, uh, which yeah. uh, will have gone down very well with his teammate. That's not the company line, Valtteri. No, nope. like you're on a one-year contract. Let's not forget this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No fucks given by Finns in Formula One these days. Nope. Um, nope. So, uh, so yeah, Valtteri Bottas uh, looking to go back to back this weekend. A um, lot going on in motorsport over the next week with, uh, as I say, the uh, Spanish Grand Prix, the Monaco Monte Carlo E-Prix, and uh, I'm pretty sure practice and qualifying begins at the Indy 500 around this time next week. Yeah, uh, rookie orientation as well. Yeah, another yeah. another test as well for the 500. Yes. Actually, the Indy Car Grand Prix of Indianapolis is this weekend as well, actually, yeah. So a so. lot going on. So Motorsport, episode, motorsport 101, episode 86 um, next week, and Bike Live episode 12 as well. That's all to come. Uh, and next week uh, between now and then you can still get in touch with us on facebook.com forward slash motorsport 101 we're on twitter at motorsport underscore 101 uh, our website is motorsport 101.net um, you can find all of our podcasts including back issues of bike live and motorsport One on right the way back to the start um, on soundcloud and itunes um, if you want to back us financially uh, and get all these episodes earlier than the rest, then uh, back us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. Uh, that just about does us for episode 11 of Bike Live, Sete's Revenge. Um, for those of you that know the connection between Danny Pedrosa and Sete Gibernau, 12 years on from Valentino Rossi's uh, rather, rather brutal victory over Sete at Jerez in 2005, Sete got his revenge at Jerez 12 years what? on. Finally, on that note, we bid you farewell. From Andre Harrison and myself, Lewis Sotheby, it's goodbye. <laughs>